0: The following excerpts are from a Wall Street Journal article, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. It demonstrates why it is impossible for God not to exist. It's long but powerful. It begins, In 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story asking, Is God Dead? I Remember It. Many have accepted the cultural narrative that he's obsolete, that as science progresses, there is less need for a god to explain the universe. The relatively recent case for his existence comes from a surprising place—science itself. The same year Time featured the now-famous headline, the astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life the right kind of star and the right distance from that star. Given the roughly octillion, (one followed by 27 zeros, planets in the universe, there should have been about septillion, one followed by 24 zeros, planets capable of supporting life. With such spectacular odds, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence—a large, expensive collection of private and publicly funded projects launched in the 1960s—was sure to turn up something soon. Scientists listened with a vast radio-telescopic network for signals that resembled coded intelligence and were not merely random. But as years passed, the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. As of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely nothing. This is already an enormous statement. Take it in before we continue.
1: That's a big, fat statement, and you should reconsider it. When Carl Sagan mentioned those first two parameters, he implied that those were not the only parameters, just the two most important ones to start with, that an appropriate type of sun should have a potentially habitable world in what they call the Goldilocks zone. Not too close to the sun and not too far from it either, but just right. Exobiologists have since realized that the Goldilocks zone is much broader than they originally thought, because whenever we try to put a limit on life, we find organisms that exceed it. In that same presentation, Sagan also explained the Drake equation referring to the fraction of stars that are formed that also have planets and the fraction of those planets that can support life, the fraction of those that do have life, and the fractions of those who then develop intelligence and technology and the fraction of those that don't destroy themselves immediately the way only advanced civilizations can. Let's just look at the last term of that equation, the portion of a planet's history wherein technologically advanced civilizations exist which are capable of radio astronomy. Assuming that other life-bearing planets might have a similar evolutionary history to our own, then there would be a window between the time that life ascended to the point that it had developed technology sufficient to communicate with other worlds and the time when that race either left that world or destroyed itself. Bearing that in mind and remembering that the other planets in our galaxy did not all form at the same time, then remember also that the most advanced organisms on Earth were only microscopic and microbial for at least the first 80% of the history of life on this planet. So 80% of the planets that have life should then only have unicellular microbes. Multicellular life didn't appear until 600 million years ago and didn't populate dry land until 300 million years ago. There was only ever one truly sapient species in the entire history of our world capable of developing technology, and we didn't excel at that until about 10,000 years ago. We've only been able to communicate with radio waves for the last 100 years. So anyone who could have heard us, or anyone we could have heard from, would have to be within a radius of 100 light years at the most, because anyone further away would be out of range. Our earliest broadcasts haven't gotten there yet. So let's put some figures to that. Estimates from NASA specialists are that there should be anywhere from 10 billion to 60 billion habitable planets in our galaxy, meaning terrestrial worlds of rock and metal that are more like Earth than Jupiter. Even if that's true, that wouldn't mean that they all had life on them, nor that they were in the Goldilocks zone. But let's be as generous as possible and imagine that every solar system is like ours, with a few habitable worlds and a couple in the most suitable zones. There may be as many as 400 billion stars in our galaxy, but NASA estimates that only about a quarter of them qualify as solar systems like ours. So let's be generous again, and imagine that all of those systems are like ours, with a few habitable worlds, and at least a couple of them in the Goldilocks zone, and that one of them had life develop on it and survive all of their subsequent extinction events, just like all life on our world has done. That's one inhabited world per stellar system. And we know the proportions wouldn't be that high, of course, but. What I'm about to illustrate allows me to be very charitable. 100 billion stellar systems hosting 100 billion inhabited worlds. According to the last term of the Drake Equation, 80% of those worlds should only have single-celled microbes. And that means only 20 billion of them would have multicellular life. And so the vast majority of those worlds would be nothing but wilderness. Let's be charitable again and imagine a Star Trek-like universe where a civilization extends to something like our 25th century before doing something stupid and killing themselves. Some would early on, others would last longer, we're just working on an average. So 500 years of radio astronomy in our history would equate to 12,500 technologically advanced civilizations that haven't killed themselves yet. Now remember that Carl Sagan calculated only 10 advanced civilizations in the entire galaxy, so I'm being unrealistically hopeful. Within a range of 100 light years, there are just over 500 stars of the appropriate type to harbor the sort of system that we're talking about. If each of them had an inhabited planet, which as we said is overestimating, then the chances of any of those worlds having sufficient technology to communicate with us are 16,000 to one against. Even by the most hopeful estimate we could make, there is still no surprise that we haven't heard anything back yet. Even if there are thousands of advanced civilizations out there, they wouldn't likely have heard from us either. It may be thousands of years from now before the nearest one hears what we said a hundred years ago. What is your explanation for why we haven't heard from other life? If you're gonna argue the anthropic principle where the universe is fine tuned for humanity, then why are we only able to survive on a portion of the skin of this one grain of sand out of all the incomprehensible, inaccessible vastness of instant death all around us? Why would you make something that's 80 to 90 trillion light years across just to accommodate a single speck of dust in the midst of godzillions of other similar specks and not have anything else anywhere else that is alive? How is that fine-tuned for life? You're right about one thing. The odds against life anywhere in the universe are slim, but that's because it is not fine-tuned for life. And let's not forget that everything the Bible says about the earth in relation to the rest of the universe is wrong. The moon is not a light and is no way comparable to the sun, which is just another star, and all the stars are bigger and badder than the earth is, but the authors of the Bible obviously didn't know any of that which is how we know that the, their wrong ideas were not divinely
0: inspired. As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were far more factors necessary for life than Sagan supposed. His two parameters grew to 10, and then 20, and then 50. And so the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped and kept on plummeting. As factors continued to be discovered, the number of possible planets hit zero and kept going. In other words, the odds turned against any planet in the universe supporting life, including this one. Probability said that even we, Earth, shouldn't be here. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life every single one of which must be perfectly met, or the whole thing falls apart. Without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, for instance, whose gravity will draw away asteroids, a thousand times as many would hit Earth's surface. The odds against life in the universe are simply astonishing. Grasp what you are reading. Can every one of those many parameters have been perfect by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that science suggests we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to come into being?
1: Thank you for once again admitting that faith is a belief that is not based on the indications of evidence but rather on improbable assumptions that are not indicated by evidence.
0: Remember, assumptions don't count. Neither do superstitious myths or traditions based on ignorance.
1: So there is no reason ever to assume a God from the ignorant superstitious myths of any ancient culture.
0: As we reason, do not suppose or hope stand on indisputable facts. Exactly. So by your own impeccable logic,
1: there is no point at which we should assume anything that is not indicated by evidence. Instead, we should…
0: …think rationally and clearly. Thank you for making my point for me. The article continues showing more proof of a god. You can't show more
1: until you've shown some. You can't have an overwhelming preponderance of evidence if you don't have evidence. And you can't have evidence until you have at least one fact, which is either positively indicative of or exclusively concordant with that one conclusion. And you have not yet shown that you have even that.
0: The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example... Astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one value and the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the nuclear strong force and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction by even one part in one hundred followed by fifteen zeros, then no stars could have ever formed at all. Stunning! Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads ten quintillion times in a row.
1: It seems that deceptively alleged mathematic probabilities are the last sleight-of-hand card trick that creationists have. It's a simple illusion because it's easy to make the numbers lie if you can't verify any of the terms of your equation, and such is the situation here. The article you're citing was written by Eric Metaxas, a Christian apologist and author whose best-selling book was criticized by scholars as unhistorical, theologically weak, and philosophically naive. That's when he was writing about history. When he wrote about science he earned similar condemnation from scientists who say he is misrepresenting the facts and figures. Of the many posted rebuttals from scientists, the most famous came from theoretical physicist and cosmologist Lawrence Krauss, which was featured in The New Yorker. Krauss said, No, astrobiology has not made the case for God. We currently do not know the factors that allow for evolution of life in the universe. We know the many factors that were important here on Earth, but we do not know what set of other factors might allow a different evolutionary history elsewhere. The mistake made by the author is akin to saying that if one looks at all the factors in my life that led directly to me sitting at the computer to write this, one would obtain a probability so small as to conclude that it is impossible that anyone else could ever sit down to compose a letter to the Wall Street Journal. We found many more planets around stars in our galaxy than were previously imagined, and many more forms of life existing in extreme environments in our planet than were known when the early estimates for the frequency of life in the universe were first made. If anything, the odds have increased, not decreased. The universe would certainly continue to exist, even if the strength of the four known forces was different. It is true that if the forces had slightly different strengths, but nowhere near as tiny as the fine scale variation asserted by the writer, then life as we know it would probably not have evolved. This is more likely an example of life being fine-tuned for the universe in which it evolved rather than the other way around.
0: Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. He later wrote that a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests a super-intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question.
1: It isn't fair to call Fred Hoyle an atheist since he confessed his belief in an immortal intellect with inexplicable powers. He also argued for intelligent design and he believed in a form of creationism. He refused to accept evidence that the universe had a beginning and his steady state model required that new hydrogen atoms had to be continuously created out of nothing. He didn't follow any religious doctrine, but Fred Hoyle clearly believed in a god. Everyone knows plenty of examples of Christians coming away from religion, and when they do, it doesn't matter what religion they came from. They always end up accepting perspectives on science that were previously forbidden. So there are thousands of religious beliefs, but only one non-religious belief because there's only one supported by evidence. There are also many examples of scientists who were raised religious and eventually rejected their advanced education as a result of conditioning and childhood indoctrination. There are also plenty of disreputable creationists claiming to have once been devout evolutionists as if there ever was such a thing. Yet they're never able to explain what evolution is or how it's supposed to work, things they should have known if they once believed that but there are only a couple of examples of someone who was already competent in science and never religious and who then converted to belief in creator. Well, one of those wasn't really competent in science. He was a philosopher who had reportedly lost some of his mental faculty before being fooled by an erroneous argument for ID. The other one is Fred Hoyle, who's really the only example you've got, except that he didn't know anything about evolution either and proclaimed his ignorance with hyperbole. His career as a respected scientist ended with his conversion to a controversial crackpot whose only correct idea is one you objected to later in the video I'm critiquing now, and I'll deal with that in my next upload.
0: Theoretical physicist Paul Davies has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. And Oxford professor, Dr. John Lennox, has said the more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we are here.
1: John Lennox is a lifelong Christian and a professional apologist. Of course he's going to argue for a god. That's literally his job. The fact that religion even requires apologetics is an argument against it. As for your other example, Lawrence Krauss mentioned him in his refutation of your Wall Street Journal article. He said, My ASU colleague Paul Davies may have said that the appearance of design is overwhelming, but his statement should not be misinterpreted. The appearance of design in life on earth is also overwhelming, but we now understand, thanks to Charles Darwin, that the appearance of design is not the same as design. It is in fact a remnant of the remarkable efficiency of natural selection. Now, concluded by saying religious arguments for the existence of God thinly veiled as scientific arguments do a disservice to both science and religion, and by allowing a Christian apologist to masquerade as a scientist, Wall Street Journal did a disservice to its readers. Of course, a consensus of other physicists agree. For example, cosmologist and physicist Professor Sean Carroll argues, The failure of theism to explain the fine-tuning of the universe is paradigmatic. It helps understand the other ways in which theism fails to be a better theory than naturalism. What you should be doing over and over again is comparing the predictions or expectations under theism to under naturalism. You find that over and over again, naturalism wins. Likewise, particle physicist Victor Stenger, author of How Science Shows That God Does Not Exist, didn't claim to know everything, but he said, we can give plausible explanation for every question of this sort. Rather than the gaps increasing, I claim that the gaps have pretty much disappeared. God is not needed. We have natural explanation for the universe, for everything that we know, and no place that we have to put a God into the picture. So there's absolutely no reason to even introduce the concept of God. It's a meaningless concept. It not only has no evidence, there's no basis for it. And the universe looks just like it should if there was no God. Metaxas' article in the Wall Street Journal wasn't just blasted by experts in the field of science. It was also condemned by theologians. Quoting from the Gospel Herald, biblical scholars refute Eric Metaxas' Wall Street Journal article. Dr. Peter Enns, a biblical scholar, argues that there are two main reasons why Metaxas' article falters. First off, the notion that our theology, specifically our understanding of God, is our sure starting point for deliberating about the relationship between science and faith. He cites his recent book Evolution of Adam in regards to the fact that we should not assume that how we think about God is the unmovable and firm starting point for further deliberations and pushing the boundaries of our understanding of physical reality might actually affect the kind of God we understand ourselves to be proving. And his second point refers to the fact that we can't really stand behind God as a thing or being that can stand under scientific scrutiny. God is not a being whose existence can be pointed out here or there, And says. God is being, the ground of being, that by which all being, all existence is made possible. That is the claim of the Christian faith and to fall short of that claim is to sell us God short. Metaxas didn't just get condemnation from the Christian perspective, but Jewish as well. In an article in the Huffington Post, Rabbi Jeffrey Mittelman said, "'Sorry, science doesn't make the case for God, but that's okay. Science is in constant flux. New discoveries are made, new insights arise, new paradigms overturn previous ways of thinking. So if we base our religious outlook on scientific findings, what will happen to our theology when the science changes?' Rabbi Meidelman then cited Francis Collins and Carl Giberson, Christians who were also scientists. They said the fine tuning argument must not be too quickly fashioned into an argument for the existence of God. Like all apologetic arguments, it can be undermined by new discoveries and weakened by broad theological conversations. Now, Given the type of audience that you have, I would expect that you'd want to open with your best argument. And having already seen each of the other videos in your series, I think you've done that. That this was the best argument that you had. And look what's left of it now. If this was the best you can do, then what does that imply about everything else in your series that we've yet to discuss? I'm embarrassed for you. But that's not going to stop me from disputing, refuting and absolutely disproving every one of the erroneous assertions that you somehow mistook for indisputable, irrefutable, absolute proof of something that isn't really real.